Hello class, this is your respiratory um, lecture. So a little background on the pathophysiology of the respiratory system. We need it for oxygenation, which is the process of obtaining oxygen from the air to provide it to our organs and tissue. It also serves for ventilation. Inspiration, which is the act of inhaling the air. Um, it goes from a high pressure, which is the atmosphere, to a low pressure, which is your interthoracic pressure. And the process of expiration and exhalation is a passive process. So there's no actual energy exerted to, in order to perform expiration. However, in instances, birth patients have either COPD or asthma. The process of expiration becomes an active labored process where additional um, abdominal, intercostal, and accessory muscles are required in order to help expel that air. The respiratory system has something called compliance, which is the ability um, for the lungs to be able to um, expand and recoil at the end. Um, compliance is a measure and ease of ease of expansion. Um, compliance will be decreased whenever there's something that's preventing that ability to either um, expand or um, recoil. For example, whenever there's cases where there's fluid increases in the lungs, such as is the case with patients that have either pulmonary edema or they're in acute respiratory distress or pneumonia, um, whenever the lung tissue is less elastic or distensible, for instance, when there's scar tissue that has formed, for example, in pulmonary fibrosis or psychoidosis, or when there's a restricted lung movement, for instance, um, in the case of pleural effusion, where the lung is unable to counteract that excess pressure, that excess fluid has developed. There is an increased compliance in patients, for example, with COPD, where the lungs have been so distended for such a long period of time, they no longer have that elastic recoil um, that they should have. Resistance is the obstacle to airflow during inspiration and or expiration. It affects the changes of the diameter of the airways. For example, patients that have asthma or that have some sort of increased secretion, those diameter of the airways are going to be decreased and they're going to be um, smaller. The use of bronchodilators, for example, in patients that have asthma or rescue inhalers, are going to decrease that resistance by opening up the airways and allowing um, the airflow to be regained. The control of our respirations occurs in the brainstem as part of the respiratory center in the medulla, and then there's also chemical and medical, mechanical receptors. The chemical, the chemoreceptors responds um, to changes in chemical composition. For an example, if there's a change in CO2 or pH or fluid around it, they're going to respond to that. There's central chemoreceptors in the actual respiratory center of the medulla in the brain which respond to hydrogen ions. If there's an increase in hydrogen concentration, it's gonna cause acidosis, and there's gonna be an increased respiratory rate in order to counteract that. The opposite would occur if there's a decrease in um, hydrogen, it would cause alkalosis, there'll be a decreased respiratory rate in order to repair that imbalance. So CO2 um, inversely affects pH in the CSF.
There's also peripheral chemoreceptors that occur throughout the body, such as, um, for instance, in the carotid arteries or the aortic arch. So a decrease in um, PaO2 and pH um, are going to increase your CO2 levels in order to stimulate the body to breathe. In COPD, and there is a constant um, chronic increase of CO2, so the body um, is no longer sensitive to those minute um, increases in levels um, as a stimulus to breathe. Therefore, ventilation is maintained um, due to the low um, levels of oxygen. There are mechanical receptors in the respiratory control, um, which are part of the conducing upper airways in the chest wall, the diaphragm, and the capillaries of the alveoli. Those mechanical receptors are stimulated by physiological factors. There's three physiological factors. One is irritant receptors in the conducting airways. So you inhale something that's an irritant that doesn't belong or the body responds as it not belonging and it's going to trigger your cough reflex. You have stretch receptors in the smooth muscle which control respirations. So when they're activated, they inhibit further lung expansion called a hearing brewer reflex. There's J receptors in capillary or alveoli, which increase um, pulmonary capillary pressure um, and trigger the body to have rapid shallow respirations um, seen um, in pulmonary edema. Their defense mechanisms, this is how the lungs um, naturally protect um, from inhaled particles or microorganisms or gases that do not belong. It starts off from the start um, with your nasal hair, the nasopharynx area, and the bronchi um, with a filtration of air. So in that bronchi area and in the um, upper airway, um, it filters larger particles. In the larynx, they may sediment if they are able to cross through all these areas. And then in the alveoli, um, the smaller particles may um, settle because they have been unable to be filtered out. And the body also has something called the mucociliary clearance system or the mucociliary escalator. So it uses um, mucus and goblet cells and submucosal glands in order to help produce um, this um, mucus that hopefully is going to catch those um those particles that um enter the body that do not belong there's a secretory immunoglobulin a which protects the body against bacteria and viruses and then the cilia which are like little hair particles that are along the respiratory system hopefully are able to catch um some of the stuff because they beat really really fast and hopefully slow down um, the progress so it's able to be catched. However, those cilia, as you travel into the smaller airways of the inside um, bronchioles, um, the smaller the airway, um, the less they're able to beat. Um, there's also reasons in um, why somebody's cilia would be impaired, such as um, if the patient is dehydrated, if they're smokers, if they have had a high O2 inhalation, some sort of infection and certain drugs will impair that cilia from functioning properly. Patients with COPD, for example, would have repeated lower respiratory infections because of the destruction of that cilia that 
um, are no longer present. Therefore, um, there is an impaired secretion clearance. There's going to be a chronic productive cough um, and chronic colonization of bacteria because of cilia and that um, mucociliary um, escalator are no longer functioning. You also have a cough reflex. So um, the body inhales something. It does, feels like it doesn't belong and it's going to cause the cough to hopefully be able to um, exert it out going from um, as a high pressure, high velocity flow of air. However, the cough reflux is only effective in removing um, things that do not belong when they're above the subsegmental level. So in those larger main airways, once it reaches into the inside of the lungs and those smaller airways, the cough reflux is not effective. The body also has a reflex bronchoconstriction. So the body identifies that something does not belong, that it inhales some irritating substance and will cause those bronchioles to close in order to not allow them to further enter. However, in patients that have um, some sort of hyperactive airway disease, such as asthmatics, this reflex is very sensitive. And even if it's not something that is extremely irritant, um, that reflex bronchoconstriction is just extra sensitive and will respond even to small um, instances of um, irritants or it just may be so hyperactive that it just reacts even if it doesn't have to. There's also alveolar macrophages. These macrophages, they phagotized inhaled particles, so they hopefully like go in and they engulf it um, where there are no ciliated cells. So hopefully it forms, um, it encloses them, and then hopefully it triggers somebody to, to cough. Hopefully it gets up to the upper airways and hopefully the patient's able to get it out. There are certain particles because of their size or because how they stick to the inside of the airways that are unable to be phagocytes, such as um, coal dust. So patients that work in um, coal mines and they had this black lung because that dust is so fine and so sticky that it is unable to be uh, removed. Patients also um, who are um, smokers, those alveolar macrophages um, are also damaged due to the inhalation of smoke. So when you're doing your assessment, you're going to follow the same patterns as we've discussed before. You're going to inspect, you're going to look um, as a patient um, using any respiratory um, any accessory muscles? Is there any asymmetry? Any changes in color? Um, is there any anatomical differences that would impair the breathing? Um, how is the patient sitting? Um, how does the patient look when they're like taking those deep breaths? Um, do they look like they're stressed? Do they look like they're being ineffective, etc.? When you're doing palpation, you're going to be looking for any altered chest movements, um, any fremitus, any deviations of the trachea that you would see, um, for instance, when a patient may have like epiglottitis or something like that. Percussions, we're looking for dulces and hyperresonance areas of consolidation, such as in pneumonia. There's going to be a difference um, when you're doing the percussion or if there's excess air, such as pneumothorax or anything like that. And then you're going to auscultate, you're going to be looking for any changes, any different bowel sounds, uh, excuse me, any different breath sounds from one side to the next. You're always going to um, listen to one side, left or right, and then you're going to go directly to that same spot on the opposite side in order to be able to 
um, differentiate and be able to compare bilaterally. And sounds shouldn't be the same bilaterally. Um, any changes or any differences, um, there's something that needs to be further investigated. Now we're going to go on to upper respiratory infections. We're going to start with rhinitis, which is um, rhino is part of the nose. Itis is inflammation. So it's inflammation of the nasal mucosa. Um, different causes um, through this. It's usually an allergic process of some sort. It may be seasonal. For instance, patients um, in the spring who suffer from hay fever due to exposure of pollen um, will have it every spring. Some people may have it every fall. Basically, that seasonal means that it recurs every time, um, at the same time every year. Then there's also patients that may have a perennial um, rhinitis, and it's basically year-round because they're constantly exposed to a certain um, particular allergen that's causing this chronic um, inflammatory process of the nasal passages. Then you have frequency, so you're going to determine, is it episodic, is it sometimes, um, if it's the patient's only exposed to that allergen, for instance, you're allergic to dogs, so every time that you um, are exposed to hair dander, you're going to have this episode of rhinitis. It could be intermittent, which means it's present for approximately four days a week or less, um, for less than four weeks in a year. And then persistent would be more... Um, than four days per week um, for more than four weeks per year. So the patho behind allergic rhinitis is your body is exposed to some allergen. Um, your body now is going to produce IgE in response to this allergen um, and it's going to release this um, allergic cascade of mast cells and basophils which are going to trigger histamine and cytokines and prostaglandins and leukotrienes in order to respond to this allergen that um, the body was exposed to. Um, the symptoms of this um, allergic cascade include sneezing, itching, rhinorrhea, congestion. Um, it can occur approximately four to eight hours after exposure um, when those inflammatory cells are going to infiltrate the nasal passages and in turn you're going to have all the signs and symptoms of allergic rhinitis. So symptoms include sneezing, watery, itchy eyes and nose. There's going to be a possible decreased sense of smell. Um, if there's drainage, it's usually thin and watery. Um, if you look up the nose, you're going to see that the nasal turbinates are pale and boggy and swollen um, with repeated episodes or with more of the chronic um, rhinitis. You may also have um, sinusitis where um, the sinuses are going to fill and obstruct um, their aeration and drainage. Patients that have chronic um, allergic rhinitis may complain also of headaches, stuffy nose, nasal congestion, sinus pressure. Um, if they do have also developed nasal polyps um, and post-nasal drip, they may also report cough and hoarseness and that need to clear the throat from that constant irritation of the drainage in the back of their throat. As far as management of allergic rhinitis, we want to be able to identify um, and avoid the triggers and the goal is to decrease the inflammation and the nasal symptoms and any potential complications that could come from this chronic exposure um, and irritation and um, inflammation and be able to maximize the quality of life of the patient. Your first line therapy are inhaled or intranasal corticosteroids. We're thinking of the um, Flonase, the Fluconazone, the Momentasone, all those um, intranasal steroids. Um, 
we may give um or you may see also patients um taking um oral antihistamines in order to help with that allergic um cascade process that um is occurring um there are your first generation antihistamines which are your older generations um your bone Phenaramine, your chlorophenaramine, diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl. Um, however, all those um are shorter lasting, so they have a small a shorter lifespan, and they also have a side effect of drowsiness and sedation. So because with the drowsiness and sedation, um, patients are obviously um discouraged from taking them if they're going to work, if they're going to drive, or anything that requires them to be alert and awake. Then we have your second generation antihistamines, such as sertericine, level sertericine, loratadine, fexofenadine. Um, all those are longer lasting. They usually last about 24 hours and they have the less likelihood of causing any drowsiness or sedation. So these are better options for that long um, half-life use without the side effects um, of causing them to have drowsiness or sedation and being unable to perform their activities of daily living. Um, there's also oral decongestants such as pseudoephedrine or phenylephedrine. Um, however, we have to be very cautious um, with patients that may have a cardiac history or have some cardiac condition because with long-term use or um, a patient may be extra sensitive to it and they may um, start complaining of tachycardia or palpitations. Then you have your leukotriene receptor antagonists, um, such as Montelukast, which is singular, which is used um, for both um, asthmatics and patients that have chronic um, allergic rhinitis because it um, works on those um, leukotriene receptors and therefore it's able to take care of both things, especially if they have allergy triggers to their asthma. Okay, then you have your intranasal medications. You have your intranasal antihistamines, such as olopatadine, which is patanase. Um, you have your anticholinergics, especially if there is a cough component that comes with that ir constant irritation of the post nasal drip, which is ipratropium bromide or atrovent. You have your um, intranasal corticosteroids, which again is your first line of defense with allergic rhinitis. Um, you may have your mast cell stabilizers, such as chromalin, and then you have your intranasal decongestants, such as oxymetazoline or phenylephedrine. However, we have to be cautious with intranasal decongestants because um, with extended use beyond three days, um, thus um, the clients can um, have something called rhinitis medicamentosa, which means there is a rebound inflammation of the nasal passages for not using the medication so um, instead of helping it's going to trigger an inflammatory process from the lack of receiving the medication so three days is usually a good period window where um, beyond that um, intranasal decongestants should not be used okay we're going to move on to influenza um, so influenza, um, it's able to, it's a virus and it's able to mutate and cross species. It is highly contagious. There is a significant morbidity and mortality associated with complications of influenza. The usual season is anywhere from September to April. However, there may be some variances um, around the country, especially for instance in Miami or South Florida, where um, there is an influx of patients that come from all parts of the world at different times of the year. So we may have influenza cases um, at different times as well.
So you have four serotypes. They're listed as A, B, C, and D. A, B, C are for human infection, and D is an animal um, strain. So out of all of those, A is the most virulent and the most common. It's divided into two subclasses depending on their surface proteins. You have your H and your N, your hemagglutinin, and your neuramidinidase. Um, so the H factor is um, what enables us, um, the virus to enter the cell, and the N is what facilitates the cell-to-cell transmission. So you'll see, for instance, so it's type, it's influenza A, but it's H1N1, H5N5, um, etc. Um, it is transmitted via droplets, so there's inhalation of aerosol particles or contaminated surfaces, and that's what will transmit it from person to person. Your incubation period is anywhere from one to four days, and the peak transmission is one day before the onset of symptoms. For the most part, especially for instance in um, influenza A, the onset of symptoms is extremely abrupt. So one minute you're fine, and then um, within oh, you know, a few hours you're feeling really, really bad. Your chills, fever, general myalgia, um, etc. In mild cases, um, patient may also complain of headache, coughs, or throat fatigue. Usually, um, it's because it's viral, it will resolve on its own um, in seven days. So it's usually self-limiting. So treatment would be um, symptomatic. However, there is always a potential for complications um, of pneumonia. It could be viral due to the um, influenza virus. Or it could be a secondary bacterial infection um, that comes um, after um, the initial viral Come, um, signs and symptoms of that would be dyspnea, diffuse crackles, weakness, lethargy, um, especially in the older adults. Okay, influenza, the diagnosis is usually based on the history and physical, um, any potential exposure that the patient um, had, um, and then there's also um, confirmation via viral culture or rapid testing um, that's done within those 48 hours of the onset of symptoms. The treatment goal is preventive complications, so we're going to do um, symptomatic treatment, rest, hydration, analgesics, antipyretics. Um, there is an option for antiviral use. However, the best um, would be to start it within two days of onset of symptoms. You may see um, the most common ones that you see would be the asomtamivir, uh, which is Tamiflu, which are oral tablets. Um, and then they also have options via um, inhaler or IV, and those are reserved more for people um, that may be um, sicker or inpatient. And then there's a newer oral antiviral, which is um, the Saflusa, which is a one-time dose. Okay, as far as prevention, um, prevention is uh, the most effective management. Um, the use of vaccine, which is inactivated, um, and there's also an option for live attenuated. It basically uses the previous year's strains and they calculate what the probability is of a certain strain coming back and affecting for the next season. It's recommended with um, clients over the age of six months. It does take two weeks to produce immunity. So um, it cannot cause influenza. Um, and if you just got your vaccine and you got sick, it's probably due to the fact that you were exposed to somebody that had it, not from the vaccine itself, because the vaccine takes two weeks to produce immunity. 
Um, contraindications for the influenza vaccine would be any previous severe reaction to it um, or any anaphylactic hypersensitivity to eggs. There is an alternative form for eggs, um, which would have to be given um, if the patient has had that severe um, anaphylactic reaction to eggs. There are also uh, um, options for patients over the age of 65, which is a stronger um, dose um, in order to help um, establish the same um, immunity based on um, a lower um, immune responses from elderly. Now we're going to go to sinusitis, which is inflammation or swelling of mucosa, or the openings of the sinus become blocked. Uh, one in seven adults will suffer from sinusitis. Um, you have something called rhinosinusitis, which is a concurrent inflammation or infection of the nasal mucosa. So you have, let's say, um, a cold that also comes with sinusitis. It can also be caused due to obstructions. Um, if there's nasal polyps that are present, any foreign bodies that may have been inhaled, um, patients that have had injuries to their noses and now have um, deviated septum or any tumors that may be um, in uh, in the sinus cavities that may be causing obstructions. So once you have that mucus accumulation, it's a perfect medium for growth of bacteria, viruses, and fungi because it's dark, it's moist, um, and it's just a perfect place for them to grow. So acute sinusitis usually occurs within that one week of an upper respiratory infection. Um, it usually will last um, less than four weeks, and it will um, self be self-limiting. Subacute means that symptoms are over 4 to 12 weeks, and then chronic sinusitis is any time that a patient has sinusitis for over 12 weeks, um, persistent due to allergies or needs of polyps. Anytime there is a chronic process that's occurring in those sinuses, there's going to be a loss of that normal ciliated um, epithelium lining of the sinus cavity, and then it just becomes um, less... Um, able to protect um, and perform its function. So types, you have your viral, which is usually the most common. It is self-limiting. It usually should resolve within 14 days. However, if it starts to worsen in those three to five days after initial infection or it's lasting more than 10 days, then we can assume that it could be um, a bacterial infection that has um, now um, established itself. Bacterially, your most common um, culprits is your strep pneumonia, um, haemophilus influenza, or moxarella catarralis. Um, there is also possibly for fungal infection, the uncommon. It usually affects more of the immunocompromised patients um, due to the vulnerability of funguses to establish themselves in those areas. So signs and symptoms... Patients um, will complain of pain over the affected sinus. Usually, if it affects that frontal or maxillary um, sinuses, they'll be complaining more of that pain if they touch on that area or localized. There may be some discolored or purulent nasal drainage. Um, there will be a nasal obstruction or congestion. Um, if you look, um, if you assess inside of the nose, you're going to see edematous mucosa and large turbinates. Patients may complain or um, have halitosis, which is that bad breath due to that um, drainage, um, that nasal drainage that's dripping in the back of their throat. 
They may also complain of this recurrent headache that um, peculiarly is going to change in intensity with position changes. For instance, if they you ask them to put their head down, you're going to complain that their headache got substantially worse. Um, and that is just from the shift and changes in the secretion of drainage. With chronic sinusitis, symptoms may become nonspecific. Um, patients may not have a fever, um, but they will complain sometimes of facial dental pain. You know, they'll have pain on one side. Um, they'll run to the dentist, um, and it's not the actual teeth that's having issues, but it's the sinuses that are putting that are so full that are causing um, all this increased pressure um, to press down on the roots of the teeth. They may also have nasal congestion or increased drainage that occurs. So usual diagnosis is based on history and physical, on the signs and symptoms that the patient's complaining about. Um, however, we may um, do some diagnostic uh, radiological um, testing if we think that maybe there's other issues or if we need a definite diagnosis. Um, X-rays are not very sensitive to sinusitis. CTs are, but however, you know, CTs is a lot of radiation, so we probably wouldn't do it unless we have either somebody who's coming with chronic um, sinus infections or um, if the, you know, the treatment is not responding. Um, patients that have recurrent sinus infections or chronic sinusitis um, will probably need to be sent to ENT um, in order for them to have a nasal endoscopy where they're going to look inside and see the sinuses. Are there any polyps? Is there any issues, any tumors, etc.? And while they're in there, they may take a culture um, of what's growing and hopefully able to clean it out in order to restore a normal range. So on a side note, there is a link between asthmatics and sinusitis. So 50% of patients with moderate to severe asthma also have a concurrent chronic sinusitis. And the explanation is possibly that that post-nasal drip that's constantly draining in the back of their throat is triggering um, their reflux and causing the, um, the asthma exacerbations. Now for treatment, initial treatment is usually... Uh, because it's usually viral and following an upper respiratory infection, it's usually symptomatic relief. So we're going to have increased fluid intakes, the use of steam or humidifier in order to allow all those secretions to thin out and the airways to open and hopefully drain out. Um, we're going to encourage um, patients to sleep with their head of bed elevated in order to help from that pressure they're going to feel in their laying flat. Warm compresses along if they have like facial pain. Um, the use of oral or topical decongestants for that drainage. However, um, I know I listed here your book says four to five days, but it's usually the three-day mark um, in order to prevent that rebound congestion called rhinitis medicamentosa. Um, again, we may need intranasal corticosteroids, something with um, when we're treating allergic rhinitis to help with that inflammatory process of the nasal passages. Um, analgesics for the pain, for the headache, um, nasal saline in order to um, relieve the congestion, thin out those secretions, and hopefully allow them to um, be able to be brought out. If symptoms worsen or they're lasting more than the 10-day mark, then we're thinking you know, that it could be not viral anymore, but bacterial. The first line of treatment is amoxicillin. 10 to 14 days is the treatment. It does require longer length in order to really fully get into the sinuses and clear them up. 
if there's no improvement, then we're going to go with um, augmentin, which is amoxicillin and clavinate. Clavinate accentuates the, um, the effects of amoxicillin to make it more effective. Um, if the patient is allergic to um, penicillin, then we're going to go with maybe a fluoroquinolone or a second or third generation cephalosporin. Patients that have chronic sinusitis and need treatment um, are going to need broad-spectrum antibiotics for a good four to six weeks. So it's a longer treatment in order to really clear and get in there. If the symptoms don't improve or they become recurrent, like we said, um, then we would um, these patients would need to be referred to ENT to have some sort of um, endoscopic, nasal endoscopic evaluation to see if there's something that's causing this obstruction. Um, and um, possible surgery in order to help relieve all that area from um, what's causing obstruction or the inability to drain properly. Now moving on to acute pharyngitis. So um, acute pharyngitis is inflammation of the pharyngeal walls, which include your tonsils, your palate, and your uvula. So 90% of cases of of acute pharyngitis are viral. However, there is a small percentage that is um, strep or bacterial. Um, strep bacteria is usually the one that we definitely have to treat due to the fact that the streptotoxins can affect the heart, can affect the kidneys, can cause scarlet fever. Um, so those are um, a particular strep that we definitely have to treat. You may also have fungal infections, such as a candidiasis. Usually this occurs in patients that are long-term use of antibiotics or those that are on inhaled corticosteroids. For instance, your um, asthmatics, your COPD patients, um, when they're doing the inhaled corticosteroids, um, it's important to educate them to rinse their throat and mouth in order to prevent that steroid from um, lodging itself in the airway um, and causing this um, oral candidiasis okay um, we also may see an oral candidiasis or um, a sore throat due to um, a fungal infection um, in immunocompromised patients okay other causes include dry air um, smoking history of GERD um, allergy or post nasal trips a recent intubation, um, inhalation of chemical fumes, and um, it's also possible um, cancer if we can't find any other cause. So as far as signs and symptoms, they can range widely. Some patients may just complain of some discomfort, some scratchy feeling, while it may be even more um, severe as far as like difficulty swallowing due to the inflammation that's occurring. Um, With both viral and bacterial pharyngitis, you may have a red edematous pharynx. There may or may not be any patchy exudates. With viral, the white irregular patches are in the oral pharynx area, um, along with um, that swelling and all the symptomatic, um, and all the other symptoms. With bacteria, um, when we're looking at strep and the possibility of strep, um, usually there are four classic manifestations. Um, there's usually high fever, more than 100.4. There may be some um, anterior cervical lymph node enlargement. So those lymph nodes of the um, anterior part of the cervical area, um, it's more indicative bacteria, while posterior um, may um, indicate um, mono um, so that's what differentiates because it may present very similarly 
So there's also the presence of tonsillar or pharyngeal exudate. However, um, in those struck cases, there's usually an absence of cough. If we have all the symptoms plus cough, we're thinking more it's a viral process. So any presence of two or three of the criteria, um, it would... Um, it's good to say that we would follow with a rapid antigen detection test and a throat culture. So um, a rapid strep test and then send it out for culture if it's negative. So as far as treatment is concerned, her goals are infection control, symptom relief, prevention of secondary complications. If it is a viral pharyngitis, it's not no antibiotics, it's symptomatic relief. So gargling with warm water and salt. Um, analgesics, antipyretics if they have a fever, um, make sure they're drinking plenty of fluids, um, and the use of throat lozenges, throat lozenges in order to help with that irritation. Um, as far as bacterial, um, usually the drug of choice is penicillin for 10 days um, in order to prevent um, the complications from the streptotoxin. If a patient's allergic to penicillin, then other options would be erythromycin, clindamycin, acithromycin, or any of those first-generation cephalosporins. Um, usually, the patient will remain contagious for the first 24 to 48 hours from the start of antibiotic. Um, it's good education to have your patient um, change their toothbrush within three days of start of antibiotics in order to prevent um, reinfection. Now, if it's fungal, the treatment is a medication called Nystatin. Um, you can instruct the patients to swish and swallow, and the treatment is um, until the symptoms resolve. And again, if they are doing any inhaled corticosteroids as treatment, um, we need to educate them to always rinse their mouth and throat after every use. Now, moving on to lower respiratory, we're going to go into pneumonia. So pneumonia is an acute infection of the lung parenchyma. There is a significant morbidity and mortality associated with it. Um, and pneumonia and influenza is the eighth leading cause of death in the United States. Um, the three processes where pneumonia usually occurs is via aspiration, inhalation, or hemogenous spread. So aspiration is usually um, the normal flora from the nasopharynx or oropharynx that um, gets inhaled into um, the lower airways, um, or it could be an inhalation of certain microbes from the air. Uh, and hematogenous um, spread means that there's a primary infection from another body part that now has spread and has also invaded the lungs. Your risk factors is any recent abdominal or chest surgery, patients over the age of 65, the presence of air pollution, um, anytime there's altered mental status, such as alcohol, head injury, seizures, anesthesia, drug overdose, stroke, um, those all put the patient at high risk for aspiration pneumonia. Um, if they're immobile or have some sort of debilitating illness, any chronic disease or immunosuppressive therapy, exposure to bats, rabbits, or farm animal droppings due to the inhalation from the particles that are released in their stool, heavy drug use or smoking, malnutrition, and intestinal or gastric feeds, anytime the patient has recently been on um, antibiotic therapy, if they live in long-term care facilities, um, or if they've had a recent tracheal intubation or a recent upper respiratory infection. So for community-acquired pneumonia, means the patient has not been either in a hospital or a long-term care facility in the last 14 days. 
Um, so if they have not been in either hospital or long-term care facility in the last 14 days, um, it's considered community-acquired pneumonia. It's an acute infection. So as far as treatment, whether um, the provider decides to treat the patient um, outpatient or admitted into the hospital depends on the patient's status. There's something called CURB-65. It's a table, and it gives us a good idea of the mortality um, and the possible complications for this patient. It's based on, um, for instance, confusion, um, if the patient's urea is more is elevated, if they have an increased respiratory rate, if their blood pressure is low, um, and if they are over the age of 65. So for instance, if you score a zero to one, um, these are low risk for complications. So um, they are candidates for outpatient treatment. However, the higher the score, the more likely that they're gonna have complications and therefore they need to be um, closely monitored in, um, in hospital care. Now for hospital acquired pneumonia means that it was acquired during the process of being admitted into the hospital. Um, that was not present on admission um, and the patient um, has not been recently intubated. So for nosocomial pneumonia, it's the non-intubated patients more than 48 hours after admission. And again, the pneumonia was not present for admission. So it wasn't one of the admitting factors. Um, then you have ventilator-associated pneumonia occurs within 48 hours after being intubated. Um, Hospital-acquired pneumonia increases the costs. Um, it causes those patients to have longer stays, to be sicker, and there is an increased risk of morbidity or mortality because the patient was already with a coexisting issue that caused them to be admitted. As far as treatment, it's based on the risk, the onset timing, any potential underlying conditions, and then the stability um, and possibility, possible agent that's infecting. Um, Empiric antibiotic therapy is going to be initiated before definitive diagnosis and causative agent is identified um, and hopefully um, will be adjusted once those sputum cultures come back and then we're able to go from either um, from that broad spectrum to a more specific agent for whatever um, bacteria is growing. As far as types, your viral is your most common. It may be mild or self-limiting. or self -limiting. Um, However, it can become life-threatening depending on um, the patient's status. However, um, okay. So bacterial, your patients are usually very sick. They usually need to be admitted into the hospital in order to be treated. You have your atypical pneumonia, such as mycoplasma pneumonia, which is um, walking pneumonia. Um, mycoplasma pneumonia has traits of both bacterial and viral. Um, however, it's usually mild. Um, it affects um, patients under the age of 40. Aspiration pneumonia would mean that there was an abnormal entry of material into the trachea and lungs. Um, if it's a primary bacterial infection, there'll be um, the sputum shows um, one or more organisms, and the antibiotic treatment is based on the cause, severity, and how the patient is presenting. Um, it can also have some uh, chemical non-infectious component if the patient aspirated their gastric contents. 
Necrotizing, it's a rare complication of bacterial infection. The lung tissue becomes thick and liquidy. It may form cavitations and abscesses. Um, signs and symptoms, um, immediate respiratory insufficiency and or failure, leukopenia, bleeding into the airways. Treatment um, requires long-term antibiotic and possible surgery in order to remove um, the necrotizing um, areas. Then you have your opportunistic pneumonias, which affect immunocompromised patients, particularly your HIV and AIDS patients. You have pneumocystis gerevecchi, which is a fungal um, pneumonia. It is most common in HIV patients. Um, signs and symptoms are usually very slow. There's a subtle onset of fever, tachypnea, tachycardia, dyspnea, non-productive cough, and hypoxemia. However, if untreated or not treated um, in a timely manner, it can become life-threatening and cause respiratory failure and death. Um, on an x-ray, you may see diffuse bilateral infiltrates, which, and it may, this fungal infection may spread to other organisms. Treatment... Um, it's usually Bactrim, IV, or oral, since even though it is fungal, um, but does not respond to antifungal agents. And then rarely there may be a cytomegaloviral um, um, pneumonia. Cytomegalovirus is a herpes um, virus. It's in the herpes family. Um, it may be asymptomatic or symptoms may be mild. However, patients that have a severe impaired immune response, for instance, patients that have just had a stem cell transplantation, um, may have um, severe complications because of it. Treatments um, include antivirals um, such as gencyclovir, foscarnet, cytofovir, and high-dose immunoglobulins. So signs and symptoms, there may be some atelectasis um, where there's an absence of gas or air in one or more areas of the lung. Um, that's, what that's what causes um, shortness of breath. There may be some consolidation, um, which is typical of bacterial pneumonia, and those areas of consolidation or solid formation um, obstruct airflow, impair gas exchange, um, and it is um, typical for bacterial pneumonia cough. Patients may or may not have it. It may or may not be productive and it may be accompanied with fever, chills, dyspnea, tachypnea, and the pleuritic chest pain when they take a deep breath. Sputum, it may range from different colors. It may be green, it may be yellow, it may have rust-colored um, um, such as with strep um, um, older patients may have new onset of confusion, stupor due to hypoxia, um, hypothermia, and other non-specific symptoms, um, such as diaphoresis, um, anorexia, fatigue, myalgias, and headache. Um, if you're listening, if you're auscultating, um, there may be fine or coarse crackles over the affected area. If you hear there are areas of consolidation, um, you may listen for bronchial breath sounds, agophony, or increased fremitus. And then if there's a pleural effusion that's associated um, with the pneumonia, there may be dullness to percussion over the affected area. 
Now, complications of pneumonia include um, it being caused by multidrug-resistant pathogens. Um, The risk for this is patients that are older, immunosuppressed, they have a history of antibiotic use, prolonged mechanical ventilation. Obviously, because um, there is a multidrug-resistance component involved with it, um, virulence um, is higher and therefore it's um, less able to be treated appropriately because there's less medications that um, whatever is growing is going to be susceptible to it. Atelectasis, um, pleurisy, which is inflammation of the pleura, pleural effusion, um, which usually will reabsorb within one to two weeks after infection. Um, however, if it increases or does not reabsorb, then it can pretend, um, become a potential complication. Bacteremia, um, usually occurring with strep pneumonia or hip, um, which means um, now that pneumonia, that bacteria that's in the lungs is now spreading into the bloodstream. Due to the infection, there could also be a possibility of a pneumothorax where air collects and therefore collapses the lung due to the increased pressure. Um, if the patient is not um, able to be treated appropriately or they're very sick by the time they come to the hospital, um, they could go into acute respiratory failure. Um, there could be sepsis or septic shock, um, lung abscesses, which are rare, but they can happen, especially, if, um, for instance, with Staphylococcus aureus, Staph aureus, um, and then epima, which is the accumulation of purulent exudate in the pleural cavity. Now, for diagnosis, is usually based on history and physical and on a chest x-ray, which would say where um, the pneumonia is located. As far as um, doing x-rays to determine resolutions, it's usually not um, recommended until after six to eight weeks um, where we can really see if it has fully cleared or not. If the patient is not responding or forming excess fluid with parole effusion um, or we um, treatment is not being um, appropriate and the patient's not improving, then a thoracentesis where they evaluate the fluid that's building up around the lungs would be evaluated or a bronchoscopy where they would go with a scope and look in the inside of the lungs into the areas and see um, what's growing and they're able to get a better culture or see if there's something else that's um, preventing proper treatment from occurring. The patient is really sick. We're going to be running ABGs. We're going to be determining um, if there's any acidosis or any alkalosis or anything like that. CBCs are going to um, usually show us um, leukocytosis with white blood cells over 15,000. And usually there'll be a presence of bands, which are those immature neutrophils, um, which are occurring when there's like a rapid release of white blood cells. Sputum culture, it is important to hopefully be able to get that culture prior to start of antibiotics. However, if it's impossible for whatever reason, then um, there's not going to be a delay in starting antibiotics if it's unable to be obtained. However, it is important to get it because it's going to allow us to really know if we're treating whatever is growing appropriately. If the patient is very sick or we're thinking that they may be septic or bacteremia, um, then we're going to need blood cultures as well. So as far as treatment, our goal is to have the patient return to um, baseline status, to have clear breath sounds, normal breathing patterns, no signs of hypoxia, their chest x-ray returns to normal, um, same thing with their labs, and that there is no complications that have developed. Again, antibiotic treatment as soon as possible. 
Um, usually in those uncomplicated case, um, there should be an improvement within those 48 to 72 hours. However, in um, more acute cases or patients that are sicker, we may not see um, improvement for three to five days. If they're in the hospital and they are receiving IV therapy, um, they should be switched over to oral as soon as they're stable and able to tolerate oral fluids. For community-acquired pneumonia treatment, it's a minimum of five days and they should be a febrile for 42 to 72 hours before they can stop treatment. For all cases, we need an increased fluid intake in order to help thin out those secretions that are building up and get them um, out. If they're at home or they're outpatient, um, we want them to be drinking at least six to 10 glasses a day, unless of course it's contraindicated for whatever reason, if they're on a fluid restricted diet, etc. Um, periods of rest and activity because they will wear down um, easily, especially in that acute time when they're sick. Um, physiotherapy where they're doing um, um, chest percussion in order to loosen those secretions and hopefully allow them to bring them up. They may need um, oxygen therapy if they are hypoxic. Um, the use of analgesics and antipyretics for pain and fever. Um, in the severe cases where patients are very, very sick um, or are possibly going into respiratory failure, etc., they may need a mechanical ventilation in order to allow them to heal. As far as nursing care, we want to make sure that we're positioning and maximizing ventilation, elevating the head of the bed, or sidelining if they have altered mental status, and that we're doing frequent repositioning. Again, um, we don't want to have any issues with tissue integrity for them not being able to be moved or repositioned um, in a timely manner. If they're coughing um, or if they're having difficulty getting secretions out, they may require suction. Um, Breathing treatment and oxygen as needed. The use of incentive spirometer in order to prevent um, atelectasis formation and allow that complete expansion of the lungs. Adequate nutrition and increased fluid intake. Again, allowing the body to heal and allowing um, those secretions to thin out. Making sure that we are encouraging the full course of antibiotics. Um, even if they start to feel better, to fully complete it in order to decrease those um, um, antibiotic resistance strains from developing. Um, patients should be encouraged to get the yearly flu vaccine in order to decrease um, the chances of um, having an influenza um, complicated with pneumonia. And if they're smokers, smoking cessation is always um, recommended. As far as vaccines, there are two pneumonia vaccines. You have your pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, um, usually um, your PCV13 or Prevnet13. It's recommended in children under the age of two and adults over the age of 65. However, this particular vaccine would be encouraged if there is a high-risk um, patient with certain medical conditions or immunocompromised to get one dose between the age of two to 64. And then you have your pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine or your pneumovax. Um, this is recommended in all adults over the age of 65. However, it is recommended for a dose to be given um, between the ages of 2 to 64 if they are high risk with certain diseases or are immunocompromised or between the ages of 19, 60, 19 and 64 if they have a history of smoking or have a medical history of being asthmatic. Okay, that's it for respiratory.